Let me turn your attention to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Let me read it for us this morning. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You're badly mistaken. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence in this room. And you, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you give us a new sense of your presence and your hope and your promises through your word, through your spirit. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this season, we're in a sermon series in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, which takes us on a journey with Jesus to the cross. And so the series is going to take us right up to Easter. The context of our passage this morning is this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the 70-member ruling body over Judaism, which was centered in Jerusalem. And they have, in these passages, been challenging Jesus' authority with hard questions. Hard questions that aim to trap him, that, that, that aim to get him into hot water with someone in his audience. Last week, it was a political question. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It's a loaded political question. This week, it's a theological question. Is there a hope of a future resurrection? And there was divided opinion in Jesus' day. I know that not everyone believes in a future resurrection. But I think we, something we all do need and believe in is hope. Since everyone's talking about chat GPT, that uh, AI chat bot, I thought about getting it to write my sermon this week, but I refrained. <laughs> I wrote this sermon myself. But out of curiosity, I did give it a prompt this week. Write a speech on hope. This is what I got. Ladies and gentlemen, hope is a light that guides us through the darkest of times. It is the belief that things will get better, that there is a way forward, that we can make a difference. In the face of adversity, it can be easy to lose hope, but it is precisely in those moments that we must hold on to it the most. Hope gives us the strength to keep going, to keep fighting, and to never give up. Not bad for a few seconds. I think there's going to be a lot of temptation for student essays and college applications and job applications. That's, that's another topic. But ChatGPT is right here. Right, it's right about hope. Hope is the light that guides us in the darkness. It is the anticipation that, that better things are coming. 
Hope is what keeps us going in hard times. Hope is what keeps us moving forward in times of personal health crises or job crises or life crises. It's hope that keeps us moving forward. Nick Challies was a young man called to pastoral ministry. In 2018, he enrolled in an accelerated program that would enable him to receive a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in five years. Nick was a very diligent student. He loved the Lord. He loved the New Testament. He loved his Greek studies. He became a resident advisor and a mentor to younger students. He met a lovely young woman, Anna Catherine Conley. They began dating and got engaged their junior year. But on November 3rd, 2020, while he was participating in a sports activity with his hall, Nick collapsed suddenly and unexpectedly. Friends, first responders, and eventually ER doctors could not revive him. At age 20, Nick Challies passed away. When his dad, a Christian blogger, Tim Challies, received the dreaded call from his doctor saying, we did everything we could. He remembers that moment so well. The anguished cry of a mother who's been told that her son has died. The piercing wail of a sister who has learned that her brother will not come home ever again. The traumatized face of another sister who saw that moment her brother fall to the ground and die before her eyes. Tim writes of that moment, A darkness overcame me the night Nick died. Up to that point, my life had been largely bright and easy. But the world around me began to grow hazy when I heard he had collapsed. And it grew dimmer still when I was told that he had been rushed to the hospital. The doctor's pronouncement of his death was like a heavy darkness creeping in and settling around me, dulling my senses, trapping me in shadow. Though my eyes have remained clear, my mind has not. My heart has not. Everything is muffled and distorted. Things that should be easy are difficult. My memory is full of holes. I've lost the ability to make decisions. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm discombobulated. I'm so very weary. My friends, these are the times that we need hope. These times of great darkness and despair. And that's where I hope, that's the, whole, the context I hope we'll hear Jesus' words this morning on the resurrection, not just as a part of a theological debate, and it is, but I hope we hear it in the context of our personal situations and personal darkness, those places where we most need hope. Because in these verses, Jesus is calling us to hope in a future resurrection. Christianity is not just about debates that have nothing to do with daily life. One reason I think people reject Christianity is not just because they believe it's untrue, but because they think it's irrelevant. Here, Christianity is powerfully relevant. It, beats, it meets the basic need for human hope. Hope, in this case, in a future resurrection. Jesus talks about three things in these verses that I'd like to lay out before us this morning. The challenge of the resurrection, the grounds for the resurrection, and then lastly, the reality of the resurrection. The challenge, the grounds for, and then the reality of the resurrection. First, the challenge of the resurrection. The last passage, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians who came to test Jesus. And in this passage, it is the, Pharisee, uh, the Sadducees, which was the other main party besides the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. We don't know too much about them. There are not too many Sadducean documents that still remain. But some have suggested that they were an aristocratic party, men of wealth and rank. 
They certainly differ theologically from the Pharisees in some important areas. The Pharisees recognized the authority of the written and oral traditions, so they were open to new ideas. The Sadducees only accepted the written Torah. So what that meant is the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection, but the Sadducees did not because they did not see it taught in the Torah. They said, if the Torah doesn't teach it, we don't believe it. So the the Pharisees were theological progressives. The Sadducees were theological conservatives who believed in the Torah alone. No future resurrection, no afterlife, we die, and that's it. And these Sadducees come to challenge Jesus on the issue of the resurrection. And the way they do it is they bring up a situation that is meant to show the absurdity of the resurrection, that you like, can't possibly hold this to be true. And so they're trying to discredit Jesus. Their situation is based on the concept of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25, where a man had a responsibility to his brother if his brother died and his wife uh, still uh, was, his wife was a widow and didn't have any children. That man had a responsibility to his deceased brother to marry that widow and produce an heir. So the name of his brother would be preserved. His, his property would stay in the family. It was not about sexual immorality. It was a social responsibility to preserve a family line. The Sadducees take this principle, they seize on it to disprove the resurrection. They say, Jesus, consider the situation. There are seven brothers, and the first marries a woman, who, who, and he dies without leaving a child behind. So his second brother steps up to his social responsibility, marries the, the woman, he dies without a child, and then the third and the fourth and so on. All seven brothers marry the same woman, and they die, and eventually the woman herself dies. And the Sadducees say to Jesus, so Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? It is what logicians call a reductio ad absurdum argument. It is, you assume a position, you show how it leads to absurd consequences such that the original position can't possibly be true. Here's another very common example of the same kind of argument. Say a child comes to his parent and says, you know, I didn't really want to steal the candy, but Johnny told me I had to do it. You know, what would the parents say? A common response of parents is, well, if Johnny told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? Right, you take the, you take the original position, Johnny told me to do it, and you, and you bring it all the way to the most extreme situation. Well, if Johnny told you to, to jump off a cliff, you wouldn't do it. So, so therefore, you can't just assume that just because Johnny told you to do it, that you should do it. In the same way, the Sadducees are taking the position of a future resurrection and pushing it to this extreme case and saying, it can't possibly be true. How can seven men be married to the same, same woman in the resurrection? And, and this little exchange demonstrates that contemporary challenges to the resurrection are nothing new. Sometimes we think that ancients were gullible and they believed you know, everything and anything. But that's not true. There were people in Jesus' day who challenged the resurrection and thought it was absurd. There's no such thing as, as life after death. There's no spiritual world. When you die, that, that's it. The modern, so the modern secular objections to re- the resurrection are, are nothing new. This is the challenge of the resurrection. And in answer to this challenge, Jesus argues for, secondly, the grounds for the resurrection. Verse 24, Jesus replies, he says, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? 
In other, words, in other words, what Jesus is saying here, two reasons why the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection is because they're ignorant of the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And that is a very devastating claim because the Sadducees consider themselves experts in the scriptures. I mean, it would be like saying to a doctor friend of yours, you don't know anything about medicine. Or saying to a lawyer friend of yours, you don't know anything about the law. I mean, that, that would be an in-your-face devastating claim. And this was essentially what Jesus is saying to these Sadducees, in an area they claim to know the most, he's saying, you know the least. Because if you knew the scriptures, and if you knew the power of God, you would believe in the resurrection. And the scriptures that Jesus quotes, is what Conrad read this morning in verse 26, from Exodus 3, 6, where God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And he says, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These verses straight out of the Torah, which the Sadducees believed and considered themselves experts of. And Jesus is saying, well, if you knew the Torah, the Torah assumes the resurrection. Because when God is saying this, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already died. But God is speaking to them as if they are alive, and assuming that they are alive. I am the God of Abraham, present tense, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm not the God of people who are no longer living. I'm not the God of ghostly shadows. God in Exodus 3 is proclaiming what Jesus would say in the New Testament, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they died in this world, they're still alive. Matthew 8, 11, Jesus says, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Exodus 3 says there is conscious life after death. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And at a deeper level, life after death is a necessary consequence of the covenantal character of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all enjoyed a covenantal relationship with God, a, a relationship based on promises. And God is reassuring Moses as he's sending him to Egypt to do this very hard task of rescuing the Israelites from uh, Egypt, from slavery, from the clutches of Pharaoh. God is reassuring Moses and reminding him what it means to be in a covenantal relationship with God. It means that God will guide you and help you and sustain you. And God is saying, in the same way that I made a covenantal relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I, Moses, I, I'm making a covenantal relationship with you. And Jesus' point here in particular is that this covenantal promise of God includes resurrection. So here's the words of a commentator, William Lane, on this. He says, if God had assumed the task of protecting the, of protecting the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from misfortune during the course of their life, but fails to deliver them from that supreme misfortune which marks the definitive and absolute check upon their hopes, his protection is of little value. But it is an inconceivable that God would provide for the patriarchs some partial tokens of deliverance and leave the final word to death, of which all misfortunes and sufferings of human existence are only a foretaste. So the argument here is that the covenantal promise of God includes the promise of resurrection, the promise that God will raise his people from the dead. Because if his promises are true for only this life, 
this blip of an existence, those promises don't mean much at all. The promise of God, the covenantal promise of God, entails protection certainly from the worst enemy of God's people, which is death. So you see, the resurrection, Jesus is saying, is taught implicitly in the Torah. This area that the Sadducees were considered themselves experts of, and he's saying, if you knew your own scriptures, if you knew the Torah, if you knew the power of God, you would believe, Sadducees, in the resurrection. Because just as the scriptures argue for the resurrection, so does the power of God. And Sadducees knew the power of God from the Torah. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all that exists by his sheer power. Genesis 5, 24, Enoch walked with God, but then he never died because God in his power took him away. And then the book of Exodus, God rescued his people from slavery by his mighty arm, through mighty acts. This is the grounds of the resurrection, the promise and power of God. He is both willing because he's promised and able because of his power to raise his people from the dead. And Jesus says to the Sadducees, you should know this because your Torah teaches it. I remember this moment when my dad rescued me when I was a little boy. We lived in Chicago at the time, and we were walking on the frozen lake, Lake Michigan, with some friends. It was a winter time. And I was holding my dad's hand. It was a great uh, sunshiny day, and we were walking in this frozen lake when suddenly the ice beneath our feet cracked. And we were plunged into the icy waters of Lake Michigan, and I remember the sheer panic of that moment as a little boy. My dad was, uh, fell into the water with me, and, and uh, I suddenly felt his arm grab me close to his side, and I, suddenly, I knew in that moment I was going to be okay. And our, our friends pulled us out of the, the water, and I got a ride home in the police car that day. Um, <laughs> it's the highlight of my day after getting rescued by my dad. That's the nature of fathers, isn't it? To rescue their children. To do whatever it takes to rescue their children. And so how much more a Heavenly Father who has made covenantal promises to us and has all the po creational power in the universe, how much more will he rescue his children from their worst enemy, death? It's the promise and grounds of the resurrection. And my friends, if you believe in the resurrection as Jesus is commending to us, it opens up a whole new way of living. If there is no resurrection... Here are the implications. This world is a room without windows. It is a room without doors. It is a closed room. That's what naturalism is. It's a room without windows or doors. That, that's a hard determinism because nature is all there is. So if you're in a situation, you're stuck. There's no one to rescue you because nature is all there is. That, that, those are the implications if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, this life is ultimately a tragedy. We, we all live our lives by stories by narratives. There is a narrative right now that each of us is believing, a story that we're living into that we hope, this is, this is how, how I hope my life will turn out. And if there, is uh, if there is no resurrection, this life ultimately is a tragedy because it ends in death. And that's the final word. This life, all of our lives, will eventually end in a weak whimper. But my friends, if there is a resurrection, it means that we live in a room with windows and doors, and there is another world. If there is a resurrection, it means that this life, the story of this life, the narrative of this life can be this grand redemptive story 
where everything sad comes untrue, where there is life after death, where even after the most tragic of deaths, we can live happily ever after forever. Everyone hopes for this. Everyone wants to believe that there is a better place, that we go to a better place after death. But it's the resurrection, my friends, that makes this hope possible. And so even if you don't believe in a future resurrection, I would suggest that you should long for this to be true. If there is a resurrection, as Jesus is commending to us, what is it like? So thirdly, Jesus talks about the reality of the resurrection. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. But they also don't believe in the resurrection because they don't understand the reality of the resurrection. They, they, they think it's just a continuation of this earthly existence. Their question about the seven brothers assumes that resurrection life is going to be exactly like this life. And Jesus points out their, res, their mistaken assumption. He's like, resurrection, resurrection life is not just an extension of this life. It is a different order altogether. He says, for example, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And you say, why is that? I mean, I, all my life, this has been my goal is to get married. Why is there no marriage in heaven? It just doesn't explain. Perhaps we can fill in. We know that we will live forever in heaven, so there's no need for procreation and perhaps no need for marriage. You say, well, well uh, marriage is more than uh, procreation. It's also about intimacy and companionship. We need to realize that in heaven we'll have complete intimacy with Christ. And that is a true marriage for which we're made. And we get hints of this in Ephesians 5, that great passage when Jesus is talking about what human marriage is all about. And he talks about uh, wives and, and husbands. At the end he says, but the mystery I'm really talking about here is about Christ and the church. He says marriage is penultimate. A relationship with Christ is the ultimate thing. He says that marriage is a signpost that points to this greater reality, a relationship with Christ. And when you have that greater reality in full, there's no, no, no more need for the signpost. It's like when you're dri you know, driving to Stratton Resort to ski. As you get in the vicinity, you, get, you have signs like Stratton this way, and, and that's like, it, it's great to know that you're on the way, you're heading in the right direction, it whets your appetite, you know, that, that Stratton's going to come. When you get to Stratton, you're experiencing the reality. You don't go back to the signs and say, oh, sign, I, I love this. This is a great sign. You don't go back to the sign because you have the full reality. In heaven, we will have the full reality, intimacy, and love with Jesus Christ. And we'll no longer need the sign, which is marriage. I think I'd also suggest that in heaven, we will experience that kind of community life and friendship for which we've longed. Every relationship that we have in heaven, I think, will be marked by commitment and unconditional love and grace and, and intimacy because those relationships will, will no longer be affected by sin, which ravages our friendships and our community. That's why we don't have the relationships we want. Because sin destroys them. The reality of the resurrection is that it's a completely different order of existence. You can't just extrapolate across from our lives here on earth to understand heaven. 
And Jesus gives uh, one positive description here. He says, if there's no marriage or, or we won't be given in marriage, our existence will be like the angels in heaven. And it's this tantalizing, positive picture. Our life will be like the angels in heaven. You know, so often the descriptions of, of heaven are negative. There's no marriage, there's no more tears, no more pain, no more death. And we, we, we wish for more positive statements about what it's positively like. And perhaps we don't have more positives in Scripture because the reality far outstrips our ability to imagine it. It's not to say there's no continuity with this life. Of course there's continuity. Jesus, or God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I'm the God of Bob, Joe, and Frank. Completely different people. No, no, there's continuity of, of personality in heaven. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those people you know will be themselves in heaven. Their identity. And the, the perfect illustration of this is Jesus himself in his resurrected body was changed but still recognizable. Maybe not instantly. Mary mistook him for the gardener, but then eventually recognized him as Jesus. We will have bodies just like Christ's resurrection body. Philippians 3 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The resurrection is a continuity, but also a discontinuity. It's not just like this life. It's a different order of existence. And perhaps the best illustration I can think of that gets at this is that parable from Henry Nouwen. That parable of the two twins, a brother and a sister, talking to each other in their mother's womb. The sister says to the brother, I believe there is life after birth. And her brother protests vehemently, no, no, this is all there is. This is a dark and cozy place, and we have nothing else to do but to cling to the cord that feeds us. The little girl insists, no. There must be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light where there's freedom to move. But she cannot convince her twin brother. After some silence, she says, well, I have something else to say, and I'm afraid you're not going to believe that either, but I think there's a mother. Her brother becomes furious. A mother? What are you talking about? I've never seen a mother, and neither have you. Who put that idea in your head? As I told you, this place is all we have. Why do you always want more? This is not such a bad place after all. We have all we need, so let's be content. Sister's quite overwhelmed by her brother's response and for a while doesn't dare say anything more. But she can't let go of her thoughts, and since she only has a twin brother to speak to, she finally says, don't you feel these squeezes every once in a while? They're quite unpleasant and sometimes even painful. Yes, he answers. What's so special about that? Well, his sister says, I think these squeezes are there to get us ready for another place. Much more beautiful than this, where we will see our mother face to face. Don't you think that's exciting? The brother doesn't answer. He's fed up with her foolish talk and feels that the best thing would be simply to ignore her and hope that she will leave him alone. My friends, in the same way, Jesus only gives us tantalizing hints of what the resurrected life will be like. And perhaps it's because if he tried to explain, we wouldn't really fully be able to understand. 
You know, it'd be like trying to explain to a baby in a mother's womb what the Grand Canyon is like. Or what Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number 2 is like. The baby would have no categories to even begin to understand. Like, imagine, like, it wouldn't help to say, well, well, the Grand Canyon is kind of like the uterine wall uh, on steroids. <laughs> or the piano concerto is kind of like the, the muffled body sounds that you hear, but just think of something a hundred times more beautiful. That, that just wouldn't help. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I think it's talking about both present and eternal blessings. What sustained Tim Challies through the season of darkness and grief? It's the hope of resurrection. It's the hope that he will see his son Nick again. Tim Challies, because he is a writer, kept a journal for a year after the death of his son. He published it as a book entitled Seasons of Sorrow. And in the last entry of that journal, he imagines what the reunion with his son will be like. He imagines himself on a vessel at sea, heading toward land after a long journey through storms and rough waters. He says, I began to hear a far-off cry. I'm here, Dad. Steer toward my voice. I'm waiting for you. The voice comes in the direction of faith the direction of sanctification, the direction of perseverance. It comes from the direction of heaven. And so through the mists, I make my way toward it, holding my course toward the sound of Nick's voice. Steady on now, I hear him call. Don't give up. You're getting closer. His voice grows louder in my ear as I close the distance between us. And then as my boat finally nudges up against the shores of a land so fair, I find him waiting for me there. There in that place where the last enemy has been defeated, where death itself has been put to death, where nothing ever can or ever will separate us again. I knew you would find me, Nick says. And then as he throws his arms around me, he speaks the words I've waited so long to hear. Well done, good and faithful dad. How does the resurrection generate a powerful and profound hope in our lives? Future resurrection said there are, says to us there are better days ahead. There is this great reunion ahead. There is a world so beautiful that words cannot describe it. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. My friends, Jesus is calling us, encouraging us to believe and hope in a future resurrection. Put your faith in Jesus, in his death on, a, on the cross that brings us into a covenantal relationship with God so that we can have the hope of future resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope you provide us that pulls us through the darkness of this life and the hard times of this life and the crisis of this life. Lord, help us to trust in this promise through Jesus Christ, your own covenantal promise to your people to rescue them even in the face of death. Lord, help us to embrace the hope of the resurrection, to know that no matter where we are, there are better days ahead.
there is a better world ahead. Lord, help us to know that Christ is our hope in both life and in death. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.